Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 50. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, so we are on Oral Delights, show number 50. Don't forget, show number 52 is our 52, our years up with Oral Delights. We have been going a year with that show to celebrate. We are having a special art cover made by Skeet for that one. And it is a Michael Moorcock Elric story. So do look out for show 52. Just to give you a heads up on what's on tonight's show, we have... Bit of poetry by Samantha Henderson. Flash fiction comes from Sebastian Sheevy, who is actually one of the French people I met over at the science fiction convention over there. We have part two of Terry Edge's Fact on Plot. So do or the fact article, do join us for that. We have a little article from SF Signal giving you a little in-depth look at how SF Signal is put together. Main Fiction tonight is by Paul DeFilippo, New Austin, a great little bit of story there coming along. So, do join me. So yes, we have a little bit of a fun packed show for you tonight, but again, just before we jump in, the usual plea, any one, any budding narrators out there, please. It's always nice just to have a nice bank of narrators, you know, on tap. If you want to have a little go at doing anything for the Starship Sova, do drop us an email, starshipsova at gmail.com. Do you know, it's really nice to kind of, just it's another way of kind of meeting people and, you know, getting everyone's talents on board to help produce this magazine. So do drop me a line. So this is Oral Delights, show number 50, and we will kick off with Cinderella's Funeral by Samantha Henderson After the prince died young, and the ministers proved weak or corruptible, and the posture to the south opportunistic, she remade herself a warrior queen, riding bare-breasted into battle, her hair woven high with bones and gemstones, thanked her sisters for teaching her cruelty, beat like Boadicea the ravener's back, until an arrow found her. No longer an old man's country, its fickle charms burned away by war and the fierce beauty of children who had looked on death, so none remembered the stories of the pumpkin coach, the fur slippers, a maimed foot thrust inside. A mystery, then, when the rich robes crumbled to a kitchen slattern's frock 
and mice by the dozens poured from underneath the pall, and instead of incense, the air was ripe for days with the smell of soot and tar and turnips. There you go, Samantha. Thank you very much again. Check out Samantha's work at her website. There'll be a link on the front of the show. And Julie Davis, Julie, thank you so much. Do everyone pop over to Forgotten Classics. A great podcast and a great website. Don't forget all copyright is Samantha Henderson's, mind you. There you go. So we come on to Flash Fiction by Sebastian Cheevy. Now I met Sebastian at the science fiction convention and he just he was a wealth of knowledge, you know, he kinda of, he'd went over to the last one the last science fiction convention when it, I think it was in Japan, was that right? And he was chatting away, he was telling us all stories about him and Corey Doctorow and stuff like that. And he, it was Lucas that actually said, Oh, he's got some great little bits of science fiction out there. Why don't you check it out? So give Sebastian my card. <laughs> These bloody cards, got hundreds of them now. And I said, you know, drop us an email and drop us, send us one over. And Forkbomb came in the email. So this is Forkbomb. It is narrated by a gentleman called Ray Sizemore, who is a 35-year-old tavern manager hailing from Norwalk. Is that Norwalk in Ohio, if I said that right? Where he lives with his wife, daughter and two dogs. So this is his first narration for the Starship so far. He's been for- performing in one form or another for many years as a car- actually a karaoke host for better than a decade and more recently as an actor in a local community theatre. Ray is avid science fiction and fantasy fan, devours everything from cheap film novelizations to hard science fiction classics, a true fan of the genre. His sporadic efforts at blogging, short fiction and podcasting can be found at xrevisions.wordpress.com. Great name, that, for a site with your your, your name there, Ray. Fantastic. Do check out that. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Fork Bomb by Sebastian Chevet. Lily Lovelace and I forked at Epoch 213-1005617 and got married just a couple of jiffies later. The ceremony took place in a high-def St. Peter's Basilica, swarming with copies of every single person we had ever met. Lily's father even shipped two instances of himself, so that one could walk his daughter to the altar while the other stormed the buffet. Individuals are a commodity, after all. Over the next milliseconds, we led a pretty full life. We delegated instances of ourselves to take care of all the chores of the household. As soon as an argument arose, we would fork off and leave the copies arguing. When Lily caught me having an affair with her sister, I blamed another self, and it didn't go any further than that. As they say, tech heals all wounds, and all in all, we worked our way through. Things started to go wrong the day Lily bumped into an instance of herself who had just divorced. Divorced me. Well, another me. Not that I'd ever heard of him or his marrying Lily, but... You tend to lose touch with other selves when they hit the tens of thousands. Anyway, I was leading. Seven laps to go, burning up the track at Monaco. When the two lilies got home, they suspended the sim and stared at me accusingly. 
something was wrong. Hello, sweethearts, I said. How could you divorce me for some actress slut? shouted my Lily. And before I could say anything, she was upstairs, crying. I dispatched a fork to comfort her and stood there facing the other Lily. She looked slightly fatter and more determined. Now, let's have a little chat, she said. No lawyer this time, just you and me. There you go, Sebastian. Thank you so much. Don't forget, copyright is Sebastian Chivies and Ray. Thank you so much for a fantastic narration. I have sent Ray a story, and he's just it jumping right in at the deep end. So look out for more work by Ray in the narration side of things. The great voice he's got there, Ray. Thank you so much, sir. So we come on to if you remember a while ago, our good friend Mr. Terry Edge sent over part one of his article on plot i have got now part two and actually unfortunately terry says things are un- good for him unfortunately for the starship sova things are starting to really kick off for terry in his writing and he's not going to be able to kind of produce it his little article once a month which is a crying shame but you know i just so pleased that terry actually did these ones for us and i just said to terry any chance you get, you know, and if it doesn't matter, six months down the line, just send one over and I'll play it, you know what I mean? So hopefully we'll still hear from Terry. But for the meanwhile, we have got his part two on plot. Terry, sir, what have you got to tell us about that? Hello, this is Plot Part Two, and I'm Terry Edge. As usual, I'll be doing this in one take, partly because I believe in spontaneity but mostly because I don't know how to use the pause button on the recording software. So apparently George Clooney was driving home from the film set one day when he spotted a painting thrown away in a skip. It was of a huge naked woman, the worst painting he'd ever seen. But instead of driving by, he did what an author would do, got a flash of inspiration and nabbed the painting. Then he stopped meeting his mates on a Monday night telling them he was going to art classes instead. He said it was having a therapeutic effect and even insisted on taking them to art fairs and art shops. This went on for six months. Then he proudly presented what he said was his first painting to a close friend, which of course was the one he'd found in the skip, but signed by him. His friend thought it was awful, but agreed to hang it on his living room wall to please George. Weeks later... Clooney finally confessed on live TV, no doubt deciding that all those months were worth it for the audience's reaction and the expression he'd see later on his friend's face. Plotting a story is exactly like pulling off a practical joke. You need an idea, a situation, a planned series of events in which your main character has no idea what is happening to him or why he's being tortured, then a climax where all is finally revealed. This story also illustrates something said by Jean Cavalos, who runs the marvellous six-week Odyssey fantasy writing workshop. You're not just reporting events, you're shaping events. So how do you shape a plot? Well, everyone knows the most basic plot shape of all, beginning, middle and end. However, 
Even such a simple shape requires you to make conscious decisions about every step your characters take. This is because, in shaping a plot, you're making an essentially artificial structure. Nothing in life has beginning, middle and end. Only stories do, which is why we like them so much. They're a way of bringing order to the mystery and mania of life. As for beginnings, the big question, of course, is where? Well, Kurt Vonnegut said you should start as close to the end as possible. The beginning and the ending of your story are the most powerful parts, like birth and death, so it's important to get them right. The beginning throws down a marker to the reader. This scene is vital. This time is the only time. This setting is part of the story. And this character is at the most critical juncture of her life. The plot is the most meaningful segment, or arc, taken out of your main character's life. It's not an open-ended arc, nor is it a self-contained circle. This is very important, since the reader has to get a strong sense that the characters existed before the story starts and will exist after it. Kate Wilhelm, in her book Storyteller, suggests telling stories to children because, she says, Children are a demanding audience. They insist on an identifiable situation, a problem, a solution to the problem, and a satisfying identifiable resolution. And you have to do it in such a way that your audience would not have thought of. Surprise them. If you can hold their attention, you can plot. Incidentally, the subtitle of this book is Writing Lessons and More from 27 Years of the Clarion Writers' Workshop. Kate Wilhelm was married to Damon Knight, whose book I recommended last week, and I recommend this one too. Ursula Le Guin, in her book about writing, Steering the Craft, says, I define plots as a form of story which uses action as its mode, usually in the form of conflict, and which closely and intricately connects one act to another, usually through a causal chain, ending in a climax. Plot is a pleasure in itself. It provides an armature for narrative that beginning writers may find invaluable. However, she also warns, but most serious modern fictions can't be reduced to a plot or retold without fatal loss except in their own words. The story is not in the plot, but in the telling. It is the telling that moves. I recommend reading Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces. It was published in 1949 and is a distillation Campbell makes of the hero's journey as it appears throughout world mythology. The great thing about this book is its mixture of enthusiasm and erudition. You'll find yourself absorbing its wisdom about plot without really being conscious of it. George Lucas based the original Star Wars films on Campbell's hero's journey. In fact, there's an excellent DVD you can find in which Campbell discusses his work, filmed at George Lucas's ranch. Of course, there is just the smidgen of a chance that Lucas did not base the new Star Wars trilogy on Campbell's work. You might also want to try The Seven Basic Plots by Christopher Booker, which is fascinating, but perhaps a little heavy going in places. I'd also recommend looking at a book I mentioned in the first part of this article, Save the Cat by Blake Schneider. In it, Schneider gives his own definition of the ten types of movie plot, and the titles alone are very evocative. For example, Monster in the House, 
dude with a problem. Buddy love. Out of the bottle. Okay, I hear you thinking, but where do I start with plot? All this stuff is interesting, but I want the bare bones plot shape to help me write stories that go somewhere interesting. After starting somewhere interesting, of course. Well, you can't go wrong with the seven-point plot shape. This appears to have first been put together by Scott Meredith, who was a top literary agent. It was later modified by Algis Budris, a terrific science fiction writer and teacher who unfortunately died early this year. There are, of course, many other versions of a basic plot, and there are plenty of people who think this one is too simple. But the truth is that the majority of successful stories fit into it. I learned about it in detail at a workshop in Oregon, USA, a few weeks ago, taken by Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Catherine Rush. I hope to say more about this workshop in a later article, but it was a fantastic experience, far more than I expected. Dean and Chris teach with natural authority and that everything they propose about being a professional author has resulted from their own direct experiences. They've each published dozens and dozens of novels and hundreds of short stories. The workshop is incredibly hard work, but very, very rewarding. So, the first three elements of the seven-point plot are together which what should constitute the beginning of your story. If it's a short story, you really need to establish these three in the first paragraph or two. In a novel, maybe the first chapter. 1. Character In a 2. Setting With a 3. Problem Character, setting, problem The main character is the one we need to care about. We need to know where he is, the setting. And this should not be arbitrary. It should be relevant to the story, as well as being interesting in itself. Beware of the white room. That is, characters exist in nowhere because you haven't bothered to describe their setting. And also beware of assuming the reader will get to your setting. For example, Intergalactic Commander Buggins strode onto the bridge. Maybe enough for a Trekkie, but the rest of us will be wondering whether or not to picture something over a river. The middle of the story is where the main character, four, tries, five, fails. He or she must make an intelligent try, one the reader is impressed with, would have thought of himself if he'd had enough time to, and the failure should be unexpected, both by the character and the reader. It's here the problem gets much worse, and the villain, if you have one, succeeds. This leads to the climax, where the main main character makes his number six, last try. This should arise from the depths of his despair, when all is lost and there's no way out. Finally, number seven, validation or resolution. This doesn't mean the hero has won necessarily, but the core conflict of the story is resolved. One way of looking at plot is to see it as the distillation of a writer's natural tendency to turn life events into satisfying stories, possessing the structure and validation that life, unfortunately, usually lacks. Just the other day, I was talking to a friend on the phone about when he'd once spent four years in a religious cult, only discovering after he'd left that the leader had been sleeping with most of the women, despite claiming chastity. 
My friend told me he only joined because he was in love with a beautiful Italian woman who'd just joined. Then, but I interrupted him at that point, saying, Yes, this could make a great rom-com. He joins because he loves her, but once inside, he takes it seriously, becomes a teacher even. But she sees through it all and leaves, so he's torn between his love for her and his new belief. Then he finally leaves too and tracks her down, but at first she won't take him back because she doesn't trust the fact he keeps changing his beliefs. But in the end, he finds a way to convince her and they get together. Hang on, said my friend. It didn't happen like that at all. And I didn't get her in the end. Well, you should have, I said, hoping he couldn't hear me scribbling notes. Now, I realise I've been talking about rules or techniques, which a lot of writers like to believe they don't need to learn. I know websites where writers regularly post self-indulgent stories that are impossible to read, in the belief that their natural greatness will get them noticed sooner or later. Yes, it's true that the best writers produce work that seems very simple, stories that zoom along full of characters you really care about, and written so smoothly you don't notice you're reading at all. But that level of simplicity only comes after a writer has moved away from the original simplicity of basically knowing nothing about what he's doing, through the hard work and frustration of dealing with the complexity of writing well. Finally, to emerge at a simplicity that can seem like magic. The artist Picasso was once on French television, when very old. He was interviewed by a cocky young man, who at one point handed Picasso a piece of paper and a pen, and asked him to sketch something. Picasso obliged and handed it back. The young man said, I could sell this for thousands, yet it only took you twenty seconds. Picasso said, no it didn't, it took eighty years. So that's it for plot for now. If you'd like to discuss any of this, or just tell me you have a better model for shaping stories, feel free to post a comment on my blog, where I'll also put the outline script for this article at terryedge.blogspot.com. Thank you, and good night. There you go. Hopefully we will see or hear from... See. <laughs> we will hear from Terry in the not-too-distant future. Terry, good luck with all your writing endeavours, sir. Now we come on to a little article by John DeNaro from SF Signal. Now... John's, I don't know if you've been over a kind of SF signal before, but this is a kind of blog that's been going around and it's very important, you know what I mean? So what I want to do is just let John explain a little bit about it, then I'll come in at the end of it as well. Hello, Starship Sofa listeners. This is John DiNardo from SFSignal.com, a group science fiction blog. Tony asked if I could give a brief overview of how SF Signal got started. And how it got started was back in the middle of 2003, my buddy J.P. France came to me and asked if we should start a blog. At the time, I wasn't too keen on the idea because I thought blogs were mostly just personal vanity diaries and nobody really wanted to know what I had for lunch that day, no matter how much I might want to tell them. So we thought we should make it a theme blog, and since we both like science fiction, it seemed like an appropriate theme. We write posts based on a variety of speculative fiction topics in general. You'll see posts about books, film, TV, science, and computers. You'll see book reviews and interviews. And we also have several regular features, too. One of those is the tidbits posts, which appear just about every day. Back when we started SF Signal, we started it with the intention of, of it being something that our friends could go read. And so many of our earlier posts were quite informal, and there were 
follow this link types of posts, things that you might send to your friend in an email or something like that, and only we just moved it to the blog. But there's a certain blogging school of thought that says such posts are lazy or inferior. So for a little while we stopped, but then we had this accumulation of all these little tidbits, these links, these cool websites that were just kind of falling by the wayside and we weren't communicating to one another. So we gathered them up into one bigger post that just had a bunch of those links in them and thus the tidbits were born. Some folks believe that the tidbits are an accumulation of any science fiction related links we can get our grubby misshapen hands on, but that's not the case. We filter the content based on what we think is cool. We're fans and we want to pass along information that gets us excited about the field along to our readers. So no, we don't hop onto the computer every time George Lucas pays someone to make him a sandwich. Acquiring tidbits has changed over the years, too. What once came from casual trolling of a few interesting sites has blossomed into trolling of numerous RSS news feeds to see what's going on out there. We pass the good stuff along to our readers and hope they like it. And we also get tips from readers through email, which we greatly appreciate. And that's the story of the tidbit posts. Another regular feature we have is the mind meld interview feature where we ask a single question from a cross-section of the science fiction community. Readers seem to like this feature as those posts are always the most popular that we have. And I think the reason is, is for the reason that I like them, is it's that the answers always surprise me. You ask a question and you formulate an answer for that question in your own mind based on your own, own worldview and your own opinions and, and you think you have an answer and you don't think sometimes about the way other people see things. And it's always illuminating these posts that, that somebody always looks at something just slightly different than you do, just enough that you to shine a little light on some aspect of the topic that you, you just didn't see before or you might not have thought of. And that's always interesting to me. And there you have it. That's a behind-the-scenes look at sfsignal.com and some of the things we do here. Here we are near the end of 2008, five years later after starting a tiny little group blog amongst friends, and we're still going strong. And not only that, we've gotten a few more readers as well. We get a few thousand page hits a day, and we've garnered some positive mentions in Asimov Science Fiction Magazine and at the Sci-Fi Channel's website. We've added a few more part-time bloggers to our hive mind, and I've been lucky enough to post some articles at AMC TV's Sci-Fi Scanner blog. And that's our story. I'd like to thank our readers for spending time with us. We really do get a kick out of doing this. This is not a job for us. We're genre fans, first and foremost, and this is a hobby. And like any good hobby, it should be fun, and reader feedback is what makes it fun, so thanks. If you'd like to drop us a note or tell us about some mind meld ideas you'd like to see or folks you'd like to see in them, email me at john at sfsignal.com. And finally, thanks to Tony for giving me the opportunity to tell you a little bit about us. Thanks, Tony. John, that was a fascinating insight. And I don't really want to kind of blow John's trumpet too much, you know, in the kind of science fiction circles and their their blog they've got going there. But I think, hands down, fundamentally, they've got one of the most important science fiction blogs out there. Do you know what I mean? I don't think you can name a better one. If anyone can, do you know what I mean? It, it is a first stop for me every morning. Check that blog out, check that website out. There is just oodles and oodles and oodles of science fiction goodness oozing from that site. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, you can tell these are just kind of dedicated guys, bloggers who are just like putting out all this information. So John, I can't stress enough how pleased I am for that little article there. Thank you so much, sir. So we come on to the main fiction of the night. It is by Paul DeFilippo. And 
It's narrated by our good friend, Amy H. Sturgis. And it was actually Amy, This I got Amy to read this or narrate this a while ago. And, you know, it's just, it's been in the kind of queue and the, the queue, you know, gets a bit bigger and things get knocked down and that. But Amy pointed out something with the US elections and everything like this. She says, this story that you're about to hear is quite relevant. You know, it's, you know, you've got now come up with all, everyone in America, you've got a new change, you've got a new government is... You know, you're all looking at this new guy. Is he going to make the grade? You know, you're leaving. You're leaving an old group of people, and you're moving over really to a new set of politicians. Is it going to be any better? You know, you never know. And this story, in a way, is a little bit like that. You know, I don't want to go too much into it because it can mess it up for you. But yeah, please and please do pop over to Paul de Filippo's site. You know. That guy's putting out some great stuff lately, so please do pop over to Paul DeFillipo sites. There will be links on. So, until then, I will say, Starship Sofa is very proud to present. Escape from New Austin by Paul DeFillipo. Narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. Author's Note. As a resident of Rhode Island, the smallest of all USA states... I'm invariably drawn to the mythos of Texas, the largest of the contiguous states. Sociologists and politicians, and musicians and pop culture mavens, speak of the Boston to Austin axis, and I think that mysterious lee line has to drive through Providence as well. Ever since the days of the Lovecraft-Howard friendship, at least, there's been a numinous cord between these unlikely partners. So, of course, it was inevitable that I would someday set a story in Texas, and here it is. My one visit to this state capital stems from my friendship with my Texas anchor, Bruce Sterling, who invited me some years ago to participate in one of the famous Turkey City Writers' Workshops. You might notice Bruce's surname anagramized into that of the protagonist. Memories of Ron Goulart's hilarious stories from the 1960s about a divided America kept cropping up as I wrote this. If only I could be as funny as he. Escape from New Austin The song was a few years older than Amy Gertzlin, but it still spoke to her and her plight. Red Neck Woman by Gretchen Wilson Amy sang along to the tune pumping through the wireless earbuds of her fifth-generation iPod, the model that held 50,000 songs in a unit the size of a Triscuit cracker, which Amy wore on a necklace of living synthetic seaweed. Cause I'm a redneck woman and I ain't no high-class broad. I'm just a product of my raisin and I say hey y'all and yee-haw. Amy's skinny 15-year-old arms and legs flailed about as she emulated the playing of various air instruments. She indulged in high kicks and thunderous stomps, weird line dancing, shuffles, and slides. Plainly, she had a lot of pent-up energy to release. The door to Amy's bedroom opened just as she was bellowing out the line about knowing all the words to every Tanya Tucker song. In the doorway stood her father, Batch Gertzlin. Batch was short for Batchelder, a maternal family name used as a given name in this instance. The Gertzlins descended in part from the famed Boston Batchelders, bio-industry pioneers, a branch of the family verifying the legendary strength of the Boston-to-Austin cultural axis had relocated to the former capital of Texas a couple of generations ago. 
So, although Amy and the rest of her family were Texas natives, they also boasted a rich agnostica pedigree. Only fitting, since Austin was nowadays an integral, if non-contiguous, part of agnostica, an azure island in the crimson sea of faithland. Batchgertzlin possessed a somewhat moony face, shadowed by a messy thatch of black hair, and generally expressive of an amiable curiosity and frisky intellect. But now he was definitely irked. Amy, you're bringing the ceiling in my office down. Batchgertzlin was a freelance ringtone, screen wallpaper, emoticon, and dingbat designer, and worked from home. Amy pretended not to hear. What? Turn that music off. Batch's face was shading into purple, a nice binational mix of red and blue, actually, and so Amy dropped her pretense of non-comprehension. A flick of her tongue against her Bluetooth dental implant controller deactivated the iPod. Her earbuds resumed their default task of ambient sound enhancement and noise filtering. Batch's face regained a measure of composure and normal coloration. Thank you. Listen, Amy, your mother and I don't ask very much of you. You're almost an adult, we realize, and deserving of being treated as such, for the most part. But this senseless caterwauling has got to stop. It's most annoying. Amy felt her own face coloring now, heating up with anger. Senseless caterwauling? You're talking about some of the greatest music ever made. The music I love. Batch advanced into the room, holding out his hands in a paternally placating gesture. I know you don't like any of the music your mother and I enjoy, Amy. That's only natural between generations. After all, you weren't raised on classic acts such as Eminem and Linkin Park and Old Dirty Bastard the way your mother and I were. Those old-school performers and their modern airs are just not for you. Damn straight! You know I hate all that emo, crunk, harsh metal shit. Classic country western is my zone. Fine. Fine. But why do you have to favor the, uh, more down-market acts in that genre? Couldn't you at least try some of the other artists I've suggested? Lyle Lovett, Katie Lang, Alison Krauss. Oh, Dad, you're making my neurons go all apoptosis. Those wimps, those feebs, those posers, those zygotes. Charlie Daniels would eat them all for breakfast and still be hungry enough to swallow Shania Twain whole. Batch assumed a dreamy look. Shania Twain. What a hottie. Now there was a singer. Ugh! Dad, I promise not to rattle the plaster anymore. Just leave me alone now. Unless you had something else to say? I do. Your mother wants you downstairs now to help with dinner. Why can't Hillary do it? Your little brother is busy studying for his virus construction finals. And besides, he helped last night. Urgh! Okay, I'm coming. Batch left, and Amy waited the maximum amount of time before she knew she would receive a second notice to show up in the kitchen. Only then did she grudgingly tromp downstairs. Philippa Gertzlin stood by the methane-fueled gas range, stirring a pot of free-range turkey chili. Philippa's parents had been, still were, a famous team of young adult writers, whose current series, involving a budding teenaged paleontologist trapped by accident of birth into an intolerant faithland community, was a bestseller all across Agnostica. They had named their daughter in honor of Philip Pullman and his quintessential Agnostica fictions. 
This evening, Philippa wore loose white cotton trousers and a plain black short-sleeved cotton top. For the nth time, Amy sized up her mother's slim figure, wondering if her mother's decidedly non-voluptuous shape was to be her lot too. Why couldn't Philippa Gertzlin have had an endowment of Dolly Parton magnitude to pass on to her daughter, or at least one of Shelby Lynn proportions? Oh well, Amy would just have to go in for an outpatient boob job when she came into her majority next year. Mom, you look like some kind of robot sushi chef. Don't you ever feel like glamming it up a little? Philippa regarded Amy's own embroidered red synthetic shirt, rhinestone-studded denim pants, and hand-stitched cowboy boots with a barely concealed distaste. You know I don't believe in regional fashions, dear. However, ironically worn. Clothes are critical signifiers. I don't want my outfits proclaiming some false allegiance to Faithland of all places. Philippa Gertzlin taught popular culture at Howard Zinn University, what used to be known as UT Austin before the Agnostica Faithland split. Her last published book had been titled "The Hermeneutics of Hypocrisy," and concerned itself with the frequent preacher sex scandals that continued to plague Faithland at regular intervals, without. Inexplicably, managing to undermine in any way the basic beliefs of the heartland. Now, please, Philippa continued, if you could just set the table without offering any more fashion critiques, I've got to nuke these duck tortillas. Grumbling, Amy took down a stack of four clunky hand-fired plates from the cupboard. Each plate weighed as much as brick. Why can't we get a set of those fancy e-paper plates, the ones that let you eyeball content while you eat? Paper? I'd rather eat off the backs of exploited migrant workers. Who knows what horrid toxins might leach out of that e-paper? It's only been around for a couple of years. I know the government says it's safe, but I hope you realize just how far you can trust our elected officials. Even our agnostica politicians need to be kept on a short rein. Amy set the weighty plates down on the table with enough force to have shattered a lesser vessel. And that's another thing. How come you and Dad are always talking trash about our government? Whatever happened to like patriotism in this house? Agnostica number one, my half of the USA, right or wrong? Philippa dumped a bag of blue corn chips into a hand-woven Guatemalan basket and carried it to the table. She looked at her daughter as if Amy had suddenly sprouted bat wings. Now you're just being ridiculous. You know that no one in Agnostica talks or thinks that way. It's only in Faithland that you'll hear people shouting those mindless chants. Our mode of government is based on rationalism and skepticism. It's only through constant questioning of the empirical that Amy rattled a tray of silverware to cover the sound of her mother's voice. La 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 la! Can't hear the semiotic discourse. Philippa didn't pursue the argument, but just frowned and shook her head. Then went back to her meal preparations. A short time later, the Gertzlin family assembled for their evening meal. From his seat across the table from Amy, her brother Hillary sneered and said, "Hey, shit kicker, pass the tortillas." Hillary was a smart, wiry teenager who, unlike the others in his family, boasted a natural skin coloration the shade of a dusky plum. Hillary had been adopted by the Gertzlins when he was just months old, an African child orphaned during the post-Mugabe chaos in Zimbabwe. He was as much a product of Agnostica as Batch or Philippa, even down to his given name. 
Hillary had been named after the politician Hillary Clinton, who, during the year of little Hillary's birth, 2010, had been elected the first president of Agnostica. Batch objected now to his son's language. Hillary, I warned you about using that form of address. Ah, Dad, it's a compliment. Isn't that right, Amy? You're proud of being a country girl, aren't you? Barefoot and pregnant all the time, double-wide trailer living, coon hunting. Am I right? Amy shoved her chair backwards and stood up stiff as a vibrating board. That did it. I don't have to sit here and be insulted. None of you understand me at all. This bleeding heart family sucks. This tight-ass city sucks. This whole peachy, super-sensitive, liberal country sucks. Fleeing to hide her tears, Amy ran upstairs to her bedroom. Several hours of sobbing and listening to Alan Jackson and Leanne Womack, a long interval during which no one came to console her, convinced Amy of one thing. She had to run away to Faithland right now. Defect. She couldn't stand to wait a year till she was legally an adult. But where would she go in that unknown land? The answer dawned on her almost immediately. Nashville, the home and source of the music she loved. Gretchen Wilson was still alive, Amy knew, though the woman had retired from the music business some years ago. Maybe Amy could track her down in Nashville, become her protege. Amy began packing. She stuffed a few extra clothes into a backpack, along with her favorite plush toy, an alligator bearing a stitched tourist motto from the Everglades, which she had found discarded in a thrift store and named Mr. Taxes. From the closet, she grabbed a black cowboy hat. The hat was still crisp and unworn, since too many local people made fun of Amy when she appeared in public wearing it. But where she was going, it would command respect. While waiting until the rest of her family had gone to sleep, Amy studied road maps on her pocket viewmaster. It looked like she could pick up Route 35 north to Oklahoma City, then catch Route 40 west and barrel straight on into Nashville. That is, if she could get past the border. 2 a.m. and everyone in the Gertzland home was asleep, save Amy. Out on the lawn, Amy looked back, without regret, at the only home she had ever known. Goodbye to its solar cells and rain-collecting system, its weedy lawn planted in a water-conserving mix of native plants, its faded political poster from the recent election, re-elect Sterling for mayor. Red River Street was quiet. Amy felt as if the neighborhood was already a ghostly figment of her past. A few blocks to the west, she knew she could catch one of the hydrogen-fueled mass transit buses heading north to the city limits, one step closer to the border. The bus stop was adjacent to the former state house in a safe neighborhood. When Austin joined Agnostica in the 2010 division of the USA, renaming itself New Austin, the Texas state capital had perforce relocated to Houston. Nowadays, the former home of the governor served as the Waldrop Museum and Cultural Center. Amy had to wait only a few minutes at the bus shelter. It was a little scary to be out alone this late at night, but luckily no one bothered her. The most frightening person she saw was a man with patches of armadillo skin grafted onto his bare arms, and he seemed more concerned with reading a manga on his viewfinder than in bothering a skinny teenager. Finally, on board her bus, 
Amy tried to imagine how she would get past the customs and immigration officials at the limits of New Austin. When the partitioning of the country was first being adjudicated, New Austin had managed to claim an irregular circle of land some 60 miles in diameter around the urban core. This allowed the city to retain many natural attractions and resources, not the least of which was the Salt Lake BBQ restaurant in Driftwood. Texas could afford to be magnanimous. The chunk was the only tiny bite that Agnostica had managed to take out of the mammoth, imperturbable faithland corpus of the state. Route 35 exited New Austin territory at the small burg named Georgetown. There, Amy would have to undergo scrutiny by two sets of inspectors, those of both Agnostica and Faithland. They would ask to see her ID and inquire about her reasons for leaving one country and entering another, demanding her destination and intentions. First, she'd be busted for being an unescorted minor. Even if she could get around that, she had no definite arrangements in Nashville or en route to offer as legitimate support for her trip. Well, No point in worrying about that now. With the innate optimism of her years, convinced of the rightness of her quest, Amy assumed some option would present itself when she got to the border. So she sat back, relaxed, and played some George Jones. At the outskirts of New Austin proper, Amy had to change to the long range bus for Georgetown, which she did without trouble. Luckily, she had her life savings 510 euros. Available via her personal chop card. Amy wasn't sure what the exchange rate for Agnostica euros versus Faithland dollars was at the moment, but she hoped it was favorable. She fell asleep for the last twenty miles of the bus ride, her head cradled on Mr. Taxes, awaking only when the driver called out via the onboard PA, Into the line, folks! Only half awake, Amy stumbled out. The Customs and Immigration Plaza was a vast expanse of parking slot demarcated pavement, hosting many restaurants, motels, and duty free shops, as well as some official government buildings. A hundred yards from where her bus had deposited her, near an au bon pain, a single lane of traffic, fairly light at this hour, crawled toward the lone inspection checkpoint that remained open. Sitting at a table near the door, She nursed her refreshments and tried to come up with a scheme to circumvent the inspectors. After half an hour of pointless cogitation, nothing had revealed itself to her. So she activated her earbuds and began quietly singing along to a Loretta Lynn tune. A shadow fell across Amy's field of vision, and she looked up to see a man standing by her table. The fellow was about six feet four, possessed of an enormous red beard. Matched in impressiveness only by his beer gut, he wore a one piece outfit that looked like the inner lining of a Tinkanaut suit with various hookups and jacks. For a moment, Amy was frightened, but then she noticed that there were tears in the man's eyes. The stranger seemed to want to address her, so Amy deactivated her iPod to allow them to talk. Honey, said the man, I ain't thought of that song in nigh on fifteen years since my mama died. She loved that song and used to sing it pert near every day. Of course, she could actually nurse a tune, not strangle it like you. Nonetheless, it done my heart good to hear you attempt it, particularly here, midst all these Chardonnay swillers. Amy chose to ignore the insult to her singing abilities. 
as well as the blanket categorization of her fellow New Austinites as foreign wine imbibers, especially since the latter accusation was true. The man seemed friendly enough and might know some way of getting her across the border. Thanks, mister. I'm purely sorry to hear you lost your mama, even if and it were a hound dog's age ago. Amy was surprised to find herself falling into the speech patterns and diction of the stranger, a mode of speech that resembled the vernacular of the songs she loved. She had never allowed herself to indulge in such an affectation before for fear of ridicule by her peers. But now that she had cut loose from her old life, nothing seemed more natural than to talk this way. I appreciate the sentiment, little lady. The man extended his hand. Bib Bogardus is the name, and I hail from Pine Mountain, Georgia. What's yourn? Amy Gertzlin. Pleased to meet you, Amy. Bib lowered his bulk precariously into a seat at her table. Now, just call me a nosy Nelly if I'm stepping on any toes with my curiosity. But what brings you out to this place all alone at this hour? Amy hesitated a minute. Then decided to confide everything to this friendly ear. Bib listened to her story attentively and without condemnation. When she had finished, he said, "Wall, I can't say I'd be totally happy if and my own daughter upped and hit the road. She's just about your own age, you know. Name of Jerry Lee, but I can understand how a youngin has to find her own destiny, especially when you're trapped in such a hellhole as New Austin." Why did you know that you can't even buy a Lone Star beer in this whole territory anymore? Emboldened by Bib Bogardus's sympathy, Amy leaned toward him. Is there any way you could help me scoot past these revenuers, Bib? What do you do anyhow? How come you're here? I drive a big rig, Amy, carrying a load of tamaca from Mexico to Oklahoma City. Why, that's just where I'm going. I figure on hitching a ride from there straight to Nashville. I'm going to try to get into the music biz. Bib scratched his beard ruminatively. Hmm. Best you concentrate on being a producer or songwriter with them pipes. But hell, who am I to say what you can do once you put your mind to it? They got plenty of tricks to sweeten up anyone's voice these days. Just look at that there little Simpson gal. If it weren't for her mother Ashley pushing her, she'd probably be serving grits at a Waffle House. Or whatever similar place they got in Agnostica, caviar at the French Embassy, I guess. So you'll help me. Bib got to his feet. I sure will. Come on with me, darling. Amy, holding her pack by the straps, followed Bib outside to Bib's rig, an enormous streamlined diesel-powered tractor-trailer combo bearing the proud name Dixie Bell on its prow in cherry red letters. Amy was awed. Does this actually run on fossil fuels? You bet, honey child. I know that's an illegal substance in Agnostica, but they give us truckers an exemption so long as we're just passing through. You won't catch me driving one of those water-farting hydrogen creepers, no, sir. Take me twice as long just to break even on my roots. Bib opened the passenger side door and removed a crinkly silver suit identical to the one he wore. Here, darling, slip into this. Do I have to get naked? Bib laughed. Well, you would if you were planning to drive twenty-four-seven like yours truly. Then you'd want to be hooked into the Dixie Bell's waste recycling system, epidermal scrubber, nutrient feeds, and booster drips. 
but since we're only going to use this suit to fool the Federales, it just needs access to one of your veins. So, roll up your right sleeve. Amy did as requested, then snugged into the suit, which seemed invisibly at the rear and automatically shrunk to fit her. Then she and Bib got into the tractor cab. Wow, this looks like the inside of the Long March Mars ship. Well, we're not going so far as Mars, but I do believe in comfort and technology. Jack yourself in at that port there. Once Amy's suit was plugged into the dash, she felt a deft pinprick on her arm. She worried for an instant that Bib was going to drug her and deliver her to the harem of some Yemeni prince. But when nothing happened to her as the big man started the mighty yet purring engine of the truck, she relaxed. Just let me do the talking at customs, Kay? Sure. The Dixie Bell ambled throatily up to the crossing. On the New Austin side, the border was protected by a variety of biological barricades, many of them with bachelor bioengineering pedigrees. Hedges of thorny plants, troops of fire ants, pods of mini shoggoths. On the Georgetown Faithland side, the barriers were strictly inanimate. Robot lenses and gun muzzles, monomolecular wire, glueball anti-personal mines. This natural artificial interface was as clear a political statement of the differences between Agnostica and Faithland as any tract. Two new Austin inspectors came up to the stopped truck. The first, a short, stocky Latina, led a redacted dog, a Rhodesian ridgeback with a hypertrophied snout. This mutant canine proceeded to sniff all around the tractor and trailer, while the women inspected the intelligent seals placed on the trailer at its point of origin. The second inspector, an African agnostican with a jaunty goatee, came around to Bib's door. Blood sample, please. Sure thing, officer. Bib extended his hand and pressed his thumb into the sampling pad on the inspector's viewmaster. Then the guardian of the gates came around to Amy's side, and she did the same, stifling her reluctance to reveal her identity. Surely the game was up now? In a few seconds, both inspectors seemed satisfied. You and your daughter go safe now, Mr. Bogardus. Will do, compadre. Once through the new Austin Arch, the Dixie Bell sailed beyond the corresponding Georgetown Gate and its comparable procedures just as easily. Once they were a few miles down Route 35, Amy finally felt it was safe to speak. Daughter? How did you... Bib patted the dashboard affectionately. The old Dixie Bell has a handful of useful genomic codes on file. She just injected you with a batch of silicrobes that had a tropism for the cells of your thumb. Once they got there, they started scavenging up all your original blood cells and making a replacement blood with different DNA in it. <laughs> for a second or two, your thumb belonged to somebody else. Then they put everything right again and croaked. Otherwise, you would have had one hell of an immune reaction. Now that Bib had explained things to her, Amy could sense a faint soreness in her thumb. Oh, so I can't pull that trick again? Nuh-uh. Not unless you're hooked up to the Dixie Bell. Afraid you're on your own otherwise. Well, I guess I'll just have to hope that I don't have any more run-ins with the Federales on my way to Nashville. Not too likely. Faithland's pretty quiet these days on the homeland security front, ever since President O'Reilly unleashed that sweet little global virus. 
Amy remembered learning about this Faithland anti-terrorist measure in school. Forgetting to employ her new accent and diction, she said, You mean the glowworm patch? The one that spreads by touch and retro-engineers into humans a luciferase gene that's activated by certain high-order brain chemistry patterns? That's the one, honey child. Mighty hard to commit terrorism when thinking about it makes you glow bright blue in public. Amy gave vent to a huge yawn at this point. Bib regarded Amy tenderly. He paid no attention to the road since the Dixie Bell was on cyber control. Maybe you should get some sleep now, honey child. You wouldn't mind? No, I'll just punch up some government mule in my earbuds and do my road warrior thing. Okay, thanks. Before she knew it, Amy was asleep. When she awoke, daylight reigned outside, and they were approaching a major metropolitan area. Is that... Oklahoma City? Sure enough. Here's where you and me got apart ways, I fear. I'm going to drop you off at the Greyhound Terminal. I figure you probably got enough cash for a ticket to Nashville. Or do you need some bits on your chop? No, no, I'm all set, Bib. Thank you so much for all you've done. You've been... You've been sweeter to me than Mama's iced tea. Well, Amy, you done reminded me of my own little princess, so weren't no way in God's creation I could let you be disappointed. You take care now, you hear, on the rest of your trip. Faithland's a mighty safe place for the most part, but there's always folks out there looking to score. Stripped of the truck's passenger suit, wearing her backpack, Amy stood on the sidewalk outside the bus terminal, waving goodbye to the Dixie Bell. So much for all the horrible things the agnosticans like to say about the Faithlanders. Amy felt confirmed in her decision to leave the elite enclave into which she had been born. She looked around now at the streets of the first Faithland city she had ever visited, expecting to see immense differences from home. Truth to tell, however, many of the same franchises occupied various storefronts, although a few names were new to her. She wondered if Jenna's Pinoirs was equivalent to Victoria's Secret. It would have been nice to explore a little, but Nashville beckoned. The ticket to Nashville took almost 50 of Amy's euros, which she exchanged for $40 at an ATM in the terminal. She even had a few dollars left over for breakfast at the terminal cafe. A few hours later, Amy was on her bus heading east. She had taken what appeared to be the seat with possibly the most congenial companion an Asian woman not much older than Amy herself. Although conventionally pretty, the woman had chosen to downplay her looks with a lack of makeup, severe hairstyle, and drab clothing. After a dozen miles of mutual silence, the woman turned to Amy and introduced herself in a perky manner. Hi there, my name's Cindy Lou Hu. The woman's English was excellent, but accented. After Amy volunteered her own name, she asked, are you from, like, another country? Yes, of course, Shanghai, China. I'm here to visit Brother Ray's Gospel Mission in Nashville. Huh? Cindy Lou explained that her family had been evangelical Christians for two generations, ever since adopting the creed from American missionaries. Now she was returning to the source of her faith for instruction in spreading the gospel even further. Faith is one of your country's last best exports. No one sells religion abroad like Faithland. Brother Ray and his peers are everywhere around the world. They might assign me to Latin America or Africa or Mongolia, even. It all depends. 
wherever I can do the most good bringing the word of Jesus to unbelievers. Are you a believer, Amy? Amy began to squirm. This kind of conversation was never encountered in Agnostica. Uh, well, I guess I'm kind of a, um, secular humanist. Cindy Lou's smile did not waver, but definitely acquired a steely gleam. Oh, you must read some of these tracks I happen to have with me, right now, and then we'll talk about them. We've got tons of time. Fifteen hours later, as the bus pulled into Nashville, Amy's brain felt as if it had been extracted, pureed, and reinserted into her skull. She was convinced that the friendly dialogue on Jesus and all matters biblical that Cindy Lou had subjected her to was a form of torture banned by the Geneva Convention. Still, Amy had not crumbled. She managed to refuse Cindy Lou's repeated importunings to stay at Brother Ray's mission, and engaging in a mass baptism was definitely ruled out. So, as the two women parted around midnight outside the Nashville terminal, Amy was finally left extensively on her own, for the first time since she had escaped from New Austin. The first thing she did was find cheap lodgings with her viewmaster. In the Ikea Capsule Hotel on Commerce, not far from the Cumberland River, Amy gratefully rested her head on her thin pillow the size of a handkerchief, a snooly according to its label, knowing that she was only a short distance away from all the famous musical sights she had come so far to see, and perhaps close in time as well to a career in music. The next morning, Amy was up early, eager to see all the attractions that Nashville had to offer. Surely, by nightfall, she would have connected, through some magical serendipity, with the forces that would transform her life and allow her musical talent to blossom. The first place she intended to visit after breakfast was Music Row, the district where all the famous recording studios thrived. Here had so many of her favorite songs been digitized. The sidewalks practically gleamed golden with glory in Amy's mind. But when Amy arrived at Music Row, she quickly found the district to be a hollow recreation of what she had envisioned, a series of museums and shops without any professional musicians around at all. Only fatuous tour guides and sullen gift shop cashiers afforded any connection to the fabulous heritage of Nashville. A few simple inquiries soon revealed that Music Row had been obsoleted about ten years ago by the ultimate perfection of home recording software and the changed nature of music distribution. Music Row was now distributed unevenly across all of Faithland, in a thousand garages and bedrooms, of tract houses and mansions alike. Saddened, but still hopeful after touring the simulated remnants of the district, Amy decided to treat herself to some barbecue— she found a place called Hog Heaven on 27th Street and walked the long blocks there. But the meal disagreed with her. Tennessee barbecue, it turned out, wasn't anything like New Austin's. Weird sauces, weird coleslaw, weird beans, weird cornbread. But even this disappointing repast failed to dim Amy's excitement at the thought of what awaited her tonight. The grand old Opry was performing in the historic Ryman Auditorium, and she had snagged a cheap ticket with her viewmaster. Amy spent the remainder of the afternoon strolling around the clean and pretty city. She listened to the locals' talk, working on her own accent. Despite a few letdowns, 
Amy felt sure she would still settle here. There must be a club scene through which she could meet like-minded fans and aspiring artists. A brief nap back in her hotel room refreshed her for the Opry. At the theater, Amy debated buying some snacks to serve in lieu of supper, but her money was rapidly dwindling, and she held out despite the grumblings of her stomach. Inside, Amy settled into her seat, full of anticipation. Even the snickers of some nearby girls her own age, who apparently had nothing better to do than make fun of Amy's outfit, failed to quash her fervor. But with the very first act, her faith evaporated, and she knew she was in for heartache. None of these performers were familiar to her. Favoring the old-time classic singers, Amy had not kept up with the latest voices and faces. Still, she could have become emotionally invested in their songs if they hadn't been all tarted up with synthetic sounds and pop arrangements. Where was the soul and heart of a Willie Nelson or Hank Williams III? Nowhere, it was obvious by intermission. Amy didn't even stay for the rest of the show, but instead trudged downheartedly back to her hotel, where she deluged Mr. Taxes with a monsoon of tears. In the morning, Amy realized she had one last place to go that would reaffirm her connection with this city, would justify her arduous trip here, would inspire her future course. The Country Music Hall of Fame. With a lighter step, Amy hurried down to the corner of Demumbrian and Fifth, arriving just as the museum opened. She went immediately to the Gretchen Wilson exhibit. Gretchen, Amy knew, had retired five years ago after a long and fruitful career, but perhaps the exhibit would contain updated information about her current whereabouts. Surely Gretchen still called Nashville home, or perhaps hope sprang eternal. There would be notice of a comeback tour. At the Gretchen Wilson display, Amy synced her viewmaster with the kiosk there. And brought up onto her screen all the information the Country Music Hall of Fame had to offer on her heroine. The digital guide's voice came through her earbuds. Since retiring from the road, Gretchen Wilson has invested much of her wealth in bachelor bioengineering, and now resides in New Austin, where she can more closely monitor her business affairs. Amy found herself out on the sidewalk without any memory of having exited the museum. For a long time, she just stood rooted to the spot as foot traffic surged around her. Then she turned toward her hotel to reclaim her pack and check out. As she walked, she punched up some Johnny Cash. Lead me gently home, Father. Lead me gently home. <laughs> And there you go. So I hope you got a little bit of what Amy was saying about that story. You know, it's he's going through a change, and he's a you know he's going over to a different side of politics. You've got a new leader coming up soon. Is it going to is it going to be any different, or is it just going to be like exactly like what you just left? <laughs> Who can tell? So I hope you enjoyed that short story. Comments, please do pop over the forums and. Mention all your comments there. That's it's lovely to kind of get some feedback, honestly, because feedback is what keeps this engine going. To be quite honest, do you know what I mean? I know I, I harp on for <laughs> donations and stuff, but if I wasn't getting any feedback, I'd pack it in. To be quite honest, 
then the day after tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? If it was no one talking to us, then it's not worth me doing it. So please, pop over the forums, tell us what you think about the show, anything. Do you know what I mean? That's what they're there for. Look out as well for the new Starship Sofa website coming soon. We are hitching our britches and moving over to WordPress. I'll tell you why I'm going to be going over to WordPress. It's just so I can have a bit more of a hands-on touchy-feely with the site, you know, so I can kind of do a little bit more with the site. It was always down to Paul, you know, on the other old site. And it, it sometimes, you know, Paul's a busy lad and things needed to be done and they weren't getting done. So this is my way. And, it's you know, it's all user-friendly WordPress. So fingers crossed that will be happening soon. I don't know when, but I'm seeing kind of mock-ups of the site. So it's looking rather nice. I'm still trying to keep it in the same kind of style as, as the old one. Do you know what I mean? Still the kind of the green and the black. So, fingers crossed, that's going to happen soon. And, you know, I was saying about... <laughs> just going to just scrub what I said before about donations. Donations are vital. Do you know what I mean? The Starship's over at the moment. is scratching her backside along some dusty planet. We are plummeting the depths in the red at the moment with the trip to France, all me kind of cards and flyers stuff like that then i've just paid for two years hosting fees on a new website oh we are you know any kind of she's breaking up she's breaking up and you hear the kind of planes touching like the runway that's that's how we are at the minute so any donations would be appreciated something not right but don't worry i like feedback as well so please until next week i would just like to say Good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Starship Sofa. Of that procedure Set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.